If you have a Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 10. We will soon be reading from verse 26 through the end of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning or all you have is a cell phone to maybe keep distraction at a minimum, there is a Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And you can find Matthew chapter 10, specifically the passage that we will be reading this morning on page 765 of that Bible. Earlier in the book of Matthew, as we've been progressing through there, we read through the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps, not perhaps, but indeed the greatest sermon that has ever been put to ink and the greatest sermon that has ever been proclaimed. And today we probably are finishing here in chapter 10 what what we can probably call the Sermon of Mission or Sermon of the Mission. We have the Sermon on the Mount, and now the Sermon on the Mission, and and as we think back to the beginning of this particular sermon, we realize how well the sermon started for us. There was an incredible amount of optimism. The, The fields were ripe for harvest. Jesus was going to send out his disciples with all of his authority. They were going to cast out demons. They were going to heal people. They were going to proclaim the message of the kingdom. They are going to be gifted for this. God is going to provide for them. We heard so much good news. And then it quickly took a turn for the worse, and it's almost bleak in portions of what Jesus has to say. And Jesus spent a good deal of time telling his disciples not how much good was going to be accomplished, but how much difficulty there was in front of them. This world, it seems, is not going to take the advances of the kingdom lightly. They will fight back. They will put the disciples before courts and judges. They will persecute them. They will oppress them. They will hate them, killing them if they can. Jesus then goes on to say that even though this is the case, in verse 22 of chapter 10, we read last week, that you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He says, as you go out, And you proclaim there's good news that there will be people who will be saved, but the world will fight against you. But you must endure to the end. You must endure. It's a difficult request. It's difficult to make it through our lives with slander and persecution and oppression through courts and possibly death. And some people are are incredibly strong-willed, and they hear that kind of call, and they say, well, let's get on it. You know, I don't need encouragement. The word of the Lord tells me to. I'm going to walk boldly. I will, I will face the fire of hell. I will do anything I have to that the Lord has called me to because this is what I'm set to. I have strong-willed children, and I just pray that that strong will can be pointed in a good direction instead of sometimes the bad direction that it is. But strong-willed children don't need to be broken. They need to be righted, right? We want that strong will for the Lord because they grow up into be strong-willed Christians who will do that kind of thing. But not all of us have a strong will. Jesus realizes that not all are going to clap their hands at that together and say, let's go. But others will be quite reticent to march out with this particular haze over the whole thing. Encouragement is going to be needed. So in this third section of the Sermon on the Mission, Jesus offers us encouragement. It comes to us in a little odd form, but it's encouragement nonetheless. The question that comes to us is, what can we do? What kind of mindset do we have? What kind of focus ought we to have to ensure that we do actually endure to the end? What is it that will fill us with the necessary and requisite faithful stamina that we need to see the mission through? 
Let us then turn to the words of our Lord and be encouraged by him even this morning. Begin reading here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. Our Lord says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, and truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of our God. If you seek to endure to the end, first I would tell you to fear God's righteous punishment. Fear God's righteous punishment. Sin of this world is not so easily dropped. Even those of us who have been blessed by God with the Holy Spirit, who have been cleansed by the blood and the word, know that it is difficult to loosen the grip of sin which is so deeply and firmly established in us. How much more then for those who have no taste, no knowledge, no presence of the Spirit among them? They have plans and schemes to deal with this incoming kingdom. They don't like the incoming kingdom. They don't want the incoming kingdom. And so they will seek to do all they can, not only to avoid it in their own lives, but to stop its influx into the world. They will punish any who are associated with it if they might somehow negate its momentum. And Jesus wants you to know that while the world might stand against you, you have much on your side. The first thing he points out is that God knows everything that's going on. He knows all things. All things will be revealed. All their secrets and whispered feelings, all their little plans and schemes that they've got stored up in the back of their head, those things that they might deny in public, but they would say in private, they will all one day come to light. And all the things that are kept in secret will one day be known abroad. As we read, even in Sunday school this morning, Psalm 10, 3 through 6 says it well. 
The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord in the pride of his face does the wicked not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgment are high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. This is the theme of those who stand against God. They always think that God will not ever know. This will never come to light. I can continue to get away from it. The fool says in his heart in Psalms 14 and 53, there is no God. There's no God who can hear. There's no God who cares. And they are wrong. Let it be an encouragement to you. There is no plan, there is no scheme, there is no sword, there is no oppression, there is no persecution that can come upon you that God will not reveal and he will not inflict his justice upon one day. This is precisely why Jesus says the opposite. He says, listen, if I whisper something to you, you can go proclaim it from the housetops. What I say to you in the dark, you are to say in the light because Jesus has no schemes and no plans. He is an open book. He's not doing one thing behind closed doors and another thing out in the open. What Jesus proclaims is always good to proclaim. What he says is always good to say. He has nothing to hide. Publish it loud and clear and wide. He is not like them. They keep their wickedness in the dark because they know that it is in the dark that it belongs, but he is of the light. And so it's always welcome to say the words of Jesus. Friends, they will not get away with it. Be convinced of that. Justice one day will be done and it will be seen to be done. So be patient and wait on the Lord. The further encouragement and God's righteous punishment then is not just for them, but also their punishment of you. Jesus says their punishment is limited. It's not the punishment of God. It's smaller. It's, It's minor. For just a moment, by the way, let's just stand in awe of how kind Jesus is. He's, by the way, a horrible salesperson, right? You don't, you don't talk like this when you want people to buy in. You're, you're telling them all the bad news up front. That stuff belongs in the fine print. You, you give them all the promises. You give them all the good news. You lavish them with everything right that's coming to them. And then you kind of cough and then you say the bad things really, really quickly, like at the end of all those prescription ads, right? And all those horrible things that are going to happen to you. Don't worry about that. We can make your life a tad bit better. So this is the thrust of every salesperson ever. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says the quiet parts loudly. Nothing will ever pass by us that Jesus has not quite clearly warned us about. We might grieve it and we might be sorrowful about it, but we will never, ever claim that we should be surprised. He's spoken of it. He's told us. How kind is he to do that? And even though he has said all of these things, he is saying, don't don't worry about all the things that can happen to you, right? People are going to persecute you. Your family is going to be in trouble and perhaps ripped apart. Everyone's going to hate you. They're going to oppress you. They're going to persecute you. And you know what? They might even kill you. And he turns around and says, eh, but don't worry about it. It's a hard thing not to worry about. But he says, no, no, no. What you ought to worry about What you ought to fear is God. What you are to fear is God's wrath. It's a bit of a paradox for believers. People have a hard time squaring this with 
the love of God. We have a hard time squaring it with the quite clear assurance that we find in Scripture. Why, why should we be afraid in one sentence of the wrath of God if we are assured of his salvation in Christ in the other? And I've heard a number of people try to explain this, and what they, they oftentimes fall back on is that the fear of God that we are supposed to have is a sort of reverential fear. It's a fear of just letting God down, that he is going to be sort of disappointed And we're not actually afraid that he is going to send us to hell. We're not actually afraid of the punishment. But what we're afraid of is that that God is just going to be sort of as a father let down and disappointed by his children's decisions or something like that. Now, there's a good bit of Scripture that points in that direction. And, And it's not wrong. I think that that should be something of a motivating factor. But there are plenty of passages in the Old Testament that make it very clear that our fear of God is not simply reverential, but it is of punishment. And you can point at the Old Testament and say, but yeah, Old Testament. And okay, granted, things have changed now. We have assurances that they didn't have, but it is exceptionally hard to make sense of this passage without thinking that it's a fear of punishment. Because Jesus flat out says, do not fear the one who can kill the body but can't do anything to the soul, but do fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell. There is no way to come to that and think that th- what Jesus is giving us is just this sign of reverential fear. We ought to be afraid of the wrath of God. It is the existential fear of hell and all the pictures that come with it of burning forever, of the mercy of God wholly and completely withdrawn of dying but never becoming dead, of despondency, of wretchedness, and all of it without end. You ought to be terrified of that. And you ought not think that that terror in any way diminishes the love of God. Jesus tells us immediately, tells us that we are to fear the very punishment of God and then talks to us about how much God loves us. Amazingly, he doesn't need to reconcile these two for us. He just says, you are to fear God who can end you forever and ever. But God loves you and he cares for you. God is intensity in all of his perfection. In the boundless nature of his love for you, he is perfect. And in the burning anger of his wrath, he is perfect. He is ferocious, and he is faithful in all things. Two sparrows are cheap, yet even though they're cheap, God says, falls from them. They do not fall to the ground apart from your father. And what we're prone to think is that means that God somehow just knows that they fall. But the ESV does a really good job translating this. They don't fall to the ground. He's with them. He's, he's, they don't fall apart from God. God is with them, even as these cheap, passable birds fall. They fall and they die all the time. They, they, are, they are nothing to the kingdom of God. And yet God falls with them. He cares for them. And Jesus then turns around and says, but he even knows the hairs on your head. It's a sign of his, his care and his love for you, that he knows you better than you know yourself. Now, there's a few men in here who actually can have a count of the hair on their head because it's zero. 
I refuse to look you in the eye because I'm heading there. My count dwindles every day. But God still knows you better than you know yourself. This is, this is the exact opposite of Jesus back in chapter 7, saying, depart from me, you lawless and wicked men. I never knew you. Jesus is saying, God knows you. If he falls with the sparrows and he cares for them, then he will care for you. The way that this works itself out is, is in acknowledging Jesus. You are put by the proclamation of the gospel in a crucible that you cannot get out of. You will face either the punishment of the world or you will face the punishment of God. And what you have before you is a choice to make. Will you uphold Jesus Christ and therefore have him acknowledge you before the Father and have his blood intercede for you, have his death be your death, his life be your life, and therefore escape the very fate that ought to frighten you and terrify you every moment of your day, only assuaged by the blood of Jesus Christ, that that fate is not yours. Or you face an angry bunch of men. Those are your choices. And you can't get out of it. If you are then going to last through the persecution, rest upon the punishment of God, that he will make all right one day, and trust that the punishment of men is but a drop compared to the ocean of wrath that the Lord has saved up for those who spur his name. Friends, fear God's righteous punishment. Secondly, love in right proportion. Love in right proportion. People don't give up on their sins so easily, but Jesus also knows people don't give up on their loves so easily. They're going to fight, and so Jesus is very clear. Their fighting means that the sword needs to be brought to them. He, he can't, and he refuses to reconcile all people. Part of God's glory is in saving people from their sin, and part of God's glory is showing the end of that sin. And so Jesus says very clearly that he has come to bring a sword. That sword is both death and division. Many relationships will die. Many families will be torn asunder. They will be divided. They will die. Bringing judgment and separation is part and parcel of what the gospel has to do. The gospel will divide the sheep and the goats. It will divide the wheat and the chaff. Just as judgment in the Old Testament divided the Egyptians from the Hebrews. This is what happens. The salvation of God always comes through judgment. It's not an unfortunate side effect. It's not some sort of collateral damage of the gospel. It's the very reason why he has come to bring this sword. The point of the conflict is to show us that we need to love Jesus more than any of the others. Just like before where you, you, you have to show or you have to choose where your punishment's going to come from. Is your punishment going to come from the men of the world or is your punishment going to come from God? So now you must choose in the opposite direction where your love will flow. Where your love be mostly for God and be pointed and focused on him or will it be on the men and the women of this world? Paraphrasing Matthew Henry. Before, if Jesus was saying that the hatred of the world should not dissuade us from doing the will of our Lord, then here he says, neither should their love. You can't love your family your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, more than you love Jesus. 
Jesus is incredibly firm here and especially in passages that are coming up on his central importance in everything. It's quite bold. Basically, what he has done is he has applied the first commandment directly to himself. You go back to the passages of Deuteronomy and the strength of Deuteronomy 6 when it comes to having God as the center of your life. You are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus is basically saying, that's me. You've got to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There is no one else who gets there. Jesus is first in priority. He is not second. He is not third. There isn't even a second and a third. This is Jesus all the way down. The world will press you to make this distinction. They will tell you that they want to live in their sexual sin. They want to live in their greed and their anger. They want to live in sedition and division and strife and theft. They want to live in those things. They see no problem with them. That's not actually a problem, right? They're going to say that. That's not the problem. The problem is when they turn to you, and especially true in families, when they turn to you and say, but I still need you to tell me that I'm okay. And I still need you to accept these decisions in my life. I need you to respect the way I've chosen to live my life. And at some level, you must turn to them and say, I have to love Jesus more. You have to choose. Your love, your money, your time, your resources, your thoughts, the things that you approve, the things that you disapprove, the concerns of your heart, the language you use, your passions all must be trained by the love that you have for Jesus. He is first, and there is no real second. This doesn't mean that you are not to love your family and friends. We know enough about Jesus to know that that's not what it means. He doesn't mean that you get to turn your back on your family when you become a Christian and say, ah, I don't need you anymore and I don't really care about you, so I'll see you, suckers. Like, that is not the attitude that Jesus has anywhere. He tells us to love our enemies. How much more those who are our friends? How much more those who are our families? But they cannot come first. Many of you, and you know, you know the pain. This has, I, I thought this week of people who are in unequally yoked marriages. And they, they are confronted by this grave difficulty. They, they are told that they need to love their spouse. But they're also told that they've got to love the Lord. And there are times when those loves come in direct conflict with one another, where your spouse requires out of you, asks of you, something that you cannot give them. They want to take continual trips on Sunday. They want to do something else. And you, you, you've got to choose, do I love the Lord or do I love my spouse? Those are difficult choices. But this all, by the way, is not just for those who, who have those kind of difficult situations. Jesus broadens it to everybody. He says, listen, you've got to take up your cross. You're not worthy of me. You can't, you can't have me. I'm not on your side. If you are unwilling to take up your cross daily, if you're unwilling to love me more than you love other people, you, you don't get me. Taking up your cross should not be seen as a passive thing, as though you're saying, well, like Jesus had the cross placed upon him, right? They, they took him and they said, we're going to crucify you. And so it's, it's kind of like some people want the, taking up your cross to just be like, when persecution comes, you just got to deal with it. But that not only misrepresents what happened to Jesus, who took up his cross on his own accord, actively accepting the very penalty that we deserved, 
But on top of that, it doesn't make sense of what he says here. You are to actively take up your cross. You are to wake up every morning, every morning, and choose violence. Don't let your desires in this world overpower you. You kill them. Don't let the sin that lurks so near lead you. You are to kill it. You are to crucify it. Every day you wake up and you choose the cross. It's not that all of your desires in the world are wrong. But you will kill them so that you might serve Jesus. You don't love yourself more than you love Jesus. You don't love your family more than you love Jesus. You don't love your friends more than you love Jesus. He is the center and the sun of all of our lives. It's a difficult thing to get to. It is a profound struggle. But this very place, what we do here, is meant to be the best mechanism for loving Jesus that way. Singing, reading, hearing other people be experiencing of the Spirit in worship, praising the goodness of God. All of these things are meant to make us grow in our love of the Lord. I I know so little about art. I appreciate art. And by art, I don't mean like general art. I mean literally paintings and things like that. I appreciate those things. But I have no artistic ability at all. I've never actually sat down and tried to do it. I always thought that great artists just kind of sat down I think this is what everyone thinks about anyone who has a tremendous skill. That they just sat down and just kind of like, there it goes, right? So, so, you know, the great artists in the past just sat down and they just kind of, David was made just by chiseling some stone and out he popped, right? Like, this is just what happens. But it turns out that artists especially work for months on most of those paintings. And they're doing sketches and drawings. They're trying to get the light right. They're trying to put people in, in the right positions. All of it is incredibly intentional. Every single brushstroke at times is intentional. And it's helped me to watch artists talk about good art and what good art is to look like. Because just, I don't know. I I didn't know what good art looked like, really. I I didn't know what made certain pieces of art brilliant and other pieces of art not brilliant, except for the fact that I happened to be drawn to one, but I couldn't even tell you why I would be drawn to one. And they they help show you that. It doesn't change the art, but it makes me see it with clearer eyes. Now, worship of God is meant to do something like that for us. It puts musically and lyrically the very truth of Scripture and by, by having those truths laid bare and by having us sing to them, they are meant to train our hearts to love Jesus more. That's why we come here. To have our hearts trained and shaped by the word, by the prayers of others, by the, by the singing of his praises and his glory. All of those things are meant to train our hearts. Even the taking of the bread and the cup. That is meant to train our hearts to see again that Jesus loves us and he is good and he deserves all of our affection and all of our heart. Friends, love in right proportion. You are to love others, yes. Even the good of this world, the good things of this world, you are to love. The enemies that you have, you are to love, but you are to love Jesus more. Third, you are to help the real prophets. Help the real prophets. 
Clearly, verses 40 through 42 is being said for the sake of the 12, but Matthew records it for us, so it must have some meaning for us. The you that we read of here is them. It's not us. So we don't judge the value of other people. We don't judge whether they're in the kingdom or not in the kingdom on the basis of whether they accept me. I am not their personal Lord and Savior. I am not the one that they need to accept. They can reject me wholly and still be good Christians. Maybe not wholly, I'm okay. But they can still be good Christians, right? We, we accept that, that that particular statement here is Jesus is sending out the 12 is for them. So what are we supposed to make of it? Why does Matthew record it for us? Again, Matthew, the Bible, hardly ever records history simply for history's sake. It's always, almost always got a bigger meaning than that. It's at least that, but it's, it's more than that. Some imply that this is really about apostolic succession. The apostles go out, and the reception of them is what is important because they carry the message with them. And then their successors, whomever they might be, then carry that very thing. So the acceptance of their successors is then the acceptance of them, which is the acceptance of Christ. And then the successors after them, and you just kind of keep flooding backwards, which if it all sounds very Romanish, it is. And we reject that. We don't think that apostolic succession matters. But we can make sense of this passage and, and actually uphold the value of it for us today very easily. If you have somebody coming to you and they say, hey, I want to be a missionary in Zimbabwe. And this is an old friend. You didn't even know that they were a Christian. And now they've, they've met up with you and, and you find out that, that they have been saved and that they want to go out on mission. And you didn't know who they are. You don't know anything about them really anymore. And so they've come to you and asked for help. So hopefully, not just based on friendship, but based on stewardship of the things that God has given to you, as they ask you for money and prayer, you, you have some questions for them. You ask them very pointed questions about who Jesus is, what the scriptures say, how, how do we get saved? Is Jesus' death and resurrection the center of, of the proclamation of the gospel? Is the gospel just digging wells, or is the gospel God coming near, dying for our sins that we might be reconciled to him by the blood of Jesus Christ alone? You would have those sincere questions, and they would answer them. And based on those answers, you would say, okay, let, let's do this. Let's help you out in Zimbabwe. Pray for you, give you money, I'll, I'll help you. Or you'll say, no, friend, you're not a Christian, or you don't have a good grasp on theology. I, I can't support you. But how would you know what the right answers to those questions were? We have a book. It tells us, right? This is apostolic succession because we accept the words of the apostles. We literally are reading the book of Matthew. He was an apostle of the Lord. To accept his word is to accept the words of the Lord. It is to do the very thing that Matthew is proclaiming here that Jesus taught them to do. Those who accept the, op the apostles' understanding, those who accept the apostles' word, those who accept what the apostles have written and speak, they are the ones who receive a prophet's reward, right? So whoever receives you, receives me. You, you receive what the, the apostles have said, you get Jesus. You get Jesus, you get God. It's a pretty good exchange. Pretty good exchange. Interestingly, Jesus words this so particularly, it is beautifully good news. Bruner, a man named Dale Bruner, summarizes it this way. He says, the ordinary Christian who can do no more for Christian mission than be hospitable to its workers 
will be encouraged to know that this hospitality is fully equivalent in God's eyes to being one of those workers oneself. So notice what he says. Bruner is pointing at the fact that we're not just promised any old reward. He says, if you do kindness to those who are out doing missions, if you do kindness and you accept the apostles' word, if you, if you help even the smallest of disciples, if you accept them as truly belonging to Jesus and help them on their mission, you receive a prophet's reward. You get the reward of the one who's doing the work. It's not also for random hospitality. It's not because you were ignorant of the fact that they were a missionary and they just needed a place to stay and they were an old friend who stopped by. Notice what he says. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet. You know that they're a missionary. You know that you want to help them. You receive them and you send them on their way. And he says, whatever reward might be coming to them for all the good work that they are doing, that reward is yours as well. We share in their rewards. And Jesus knows well the, the limitations that we have in this world. He knows well that not every single one of us can be sent out on mission because then there's no one back here to help, to fund. We're, we would be so consumed with our own needs. We'd be so consumed with our own wants and all, all of our own like daily provisions that no one would be around to pray for anyone else. No one would be around to support anyone else. So he needs people back here to hold the rope, as it were, for those who go down. So be those people, knowing that that reward is kept eternally for you, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, giving away the things of this earth. It's going to be worth anything that you receive in heaven will shine far above it. And Jesus makes it even better. He says, and whoever gives even one of these little ones a cup of cold water, the smallest, the smallest little help, given to the least of the kingdom. Your father knows, and your father rewards. So don't just do the small things. Do the great things for him. Seek to support missions. Seek to support the, the mission of the church as she goes out by prayer, by your working and then giving back to the kingdom, by asking what you can do, not just, not just by supporting international missions, but, but doing the work here. We are a people on mission both internationally, seeking to proclaim the gospel to people in Africa and South America. But we know that there, it's not like South America is this horribly lost place where America is the shining example of all that is Christian. We've got plenty of people around here to proclaim the gospel to as well. So we don't just seek to, to make sure that we're doing missions internationally. We do it locally. We do it individually. As a kingdom, as a church, and as individuals, we, we go out on a mission to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ. And we can look at this as though it's a responsibility. Jesus is giving it to us, and we're responsible to do it now. But it's, it's a responsibility, but it's a privilege. You get to serve the king who died for you. You get to love those he loved. Interestingly enough, you get to be hated by the very people who hated him in the very way that they hated him. The early apostles viewed that as one of the highest praises that they got, that they were treated like Jesus was, both in the reception that believers had of them and in the rejection that the world had of them. It's a privilege. It's a privilege because 
we can then trust his goodness. Whatever befalls us in the world, we know that God will be good to us. We know that we have something better than this world awaiting us. Jesus has died to forgive our sins and was raised in the promise of a new creation that is coming for us, that will be ours. So remain faithful, save the lost, and love Jesus to the end. Let's pray. Jesus, we are often cold in our love of you. We do not dwell on your goodness and your kindness to us. And so we don't often think to tell others of it. Help us to love you with our hearts, minds, souls, and all of our strength, that such love might overflow into our telling of your good work to all who might hear. Give us an endurance and faith, and may the harvest be plentiful. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Would you stand and sing our song of response, Christ is risen indeed.